Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host and my dad, Ronnie Nathan, and we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. Remember, please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And today is a special episode of TPNR. For one, we'll be hearing about and exploring a very erudite academic theory that transcends numerous areas of study from politics to sociology and even sports science. In academic circles, it has the technical term, the asshole theory. (laughs) (laughs) We're also at the one year anniversary of when the first stay at home orders were implemented. So we thought it'd be a good good idea to take some time to appreciate frontline and essential workers. One group in particular that hasn't had nearly as much applause, but certainly deserves it, is truckers. The men and women who move everything from face masks to fresh food, from toothpaste to toilet paper. And one of those truckers who's been on the front lines the entire time is my very own brother, Eddie Nathan, who also happens to be uh, Ronnie Nathan's other son. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll, we'll try to figure out over the course of this uh, interview which, which child is the favorite child. But uh, we'll, we'll leave that for another day with um, psychoanalysts and all that uh, as, as special guests. But uh, Eddie, Eddie has an interesting tra- trajectory that brought him to, to this career. He spent about 20, 25 years at all levels of education, including as a teacher as well as in administration, in both mainstream public schools as well as charter schools. So not only does he have a broad range of experience in education, when he decided to transition to trucking a couple of years ago, he was arguably one of the most highly credentialed individuals in the history of the trucking industry. So, uh, I don't know about that. So, yeah, I mean, seriously, what do you have, like two, two master's degrees? Yeah, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology from Rutgers. I have a, a, master, of, a master of arts in special education and a master of science in supervision administration. Uh, so a very, very educated trucker. You could be sure that your toilet paper is getting to the right place administered and, <laughs> you know, all, all kinds of obstacles overcome. <laughs> I could find my way around GPS. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, why don't we start by sharing a bit about your background, Ed, and, and why you decided to make such a radical change a couple of years ago? Uh, so... When I was finishing up college, um, I was I was definitely drawn to some type of civil service type job, and uh, there were a, a, you know a few areas I was interested in. Uh, one was being a firefighter. That didn't seem like a very likely path for me because I lived in New Jersey, and there are not a lot of paid fire departments in New Jersey at the time. New York City required firefighters to live in New York City if you were a new applicant 
Uh, so that didn't seem like a viable path. And I'd gone to a, uh, a some type of course or a talk about um, air traffic controllers. And I became really interested in, in becoming an air traffic controller. Uh, so I took a course and I did some studying, took the civil service test and scored very well, uh, much higher than what the minimum requirement at the time was to become eligible for a position. But at that moment in time, the first Gulf War ended and we had tens of thousands of veterans coming back from the Middle East. Uh, military veterans get preference for those sorts of jobs and points added to their test scores. So I ended up not getting a job as an air traffic controller and I ended up falling into teaching, specifically teaching special education. So um, I started teaching in New York City, went back to school, got these two master's degrees you know, and, and I followed that, that career path for close to 25 years uh, as a teacher for about 11 years, as an administrator for uh, the rest of the time as assistant principal and running special ed departments. And um, I got to a, a point in my life where I felt like I'd been spending my entire adult life fighting, mm. you know, fighting, advocating, uh, fighting for the type of curriculum that I wanted to teach, fighting for uh, the rights of my students, advocating for you know, students to learn in an environment that was conducive to their special needs, fighting bureaucracy, fighting the politics of the educational system. Um, you know, my philosophy on education is different from the traditional archaic educational system that we have in the United States. I always felt that, you know, the education system that we have, which was built during the industrial age, was basically built to teach people how to follow instructions, sit in straight lines, follow orders, do what you're told, you know, keep quiet and do what you're told. That's interesting. And I felt that, you know, in this day and age, particularly, you know, as technology developed and changing society, you know, changing needs in the workplace, I felt that education should adapt, you know, to the needs of current society and, and education is very resistant to change. And so I always felt like I was fighting that fight. Um, and the other, the other issue is people. Um, there's a lot in every industry, there's, there's politics and people who have personal agendas. Um, and you know, while you know, I have personal agendas just like everybody else, my personal agenda was to do what is right for my kids for the right reasons. And I felt like I was surrounded by a lot of people who had different personal agendas uh, that didn't kind of fit in my. So, uh, you know, to make a long story kind of less long, I felt like I needed to make a change. I was burned out, I was tired of fighting. And I was at a point in my life where I just wanted to find some peace and harmony, you know, in my life. And, you know, what the hell do you do when you're 49 years old and you have a family and a mortgage and responsibilities? Like, what do you do to start over, you know, still, you know, make enough money to, to fulfill your responsibilities to your family, but also, you know, do something that just gives you some personal peace. And so I decided to become a truck driver. <laughs> Funny, I started, I decided to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, great. I mean, I kind of figured like when I was in school, like teachers kept telling me, you know, I, I was a daydreamer in school. So I'd be sitting in class and, you know, I'd be like, 
you know, off in my own world and daydreaming and thinking. And teachers were constantly saying, Eddie, come back to us, Eddie. Eddie, are you here? Nobody's ever going to pay you to sit on your ass and stare at the window all day. <laughs> so I figured I'd prove them wrong. So now I get paid to sit on my ass and stare out a window all day. <laughs> I didn't quite think of it that way. Well, share with us what a typical day is like for you. Where, you know, what time you start your day? Where do you go? Because, you know, when you, <clears throat> when you first started training, I know that you were doing long haul up in, you know, Wyoming. And on any given day, you're just all over the, the, the you know, western half of, of the country. But now your, your day is a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I have to say becoming a truck driver is a hell of a lot harder than being a truck driver. Mm. Uh, and becoming a truck driver was a lot harder than I expected it to be. Uh, and so that first six months was really quite an adventure. You know, look on, looking back on it, I learned a lot and, you know, had, have a lot of good memories of it. But it was hard. Uh, getting, getting your CDL, your Class A CDL was challenging. And then just learning how to be a truck driver uh, was even more challenging. Uh, but the first six months I was over the road, I was on a dedicated account in the what they call the Western Southwest Six plus Oregon. Mm. Uh, so it was like the six Southwestern states and Oregon. And so I traveled all over the Southwest and, you know, all the way as far up as, uh, I, I mean, I traveled as far up as Washington just because getting to some of the places in Oregon you had to kind of cross over into Washington. Uh, but, you know, it was, it, was, it was fun. It was adventurous. Definitely learned how to drive because there's a lot of terrain that you have to drive through and a lot of weather you have to drive through. Um, and then after six months of experience over the road, uh, I had enough experience to be qualified for some other jobs. And that's when I, I landed at J.B. Hunt as a local intermodal uh, truck driver. Uh, so intermodal just means multi modes of transportation. In this case, rail to ground or ground to rail. Uh, so my typical day starts out in the uh, rail yards in Los Angeles. Uh, there are two main ramps that, that, that I go to 99% of the time, which is the LA ramp and the commerce ramp. They're kind of right next to each other. Um, and that's where all the trains come in from basically across the United States coming west. And it's also where uh, a lot of the containers that come off of the ships in the ports on the LA coast uh, go to the rail to then be transported from west to east. Um, so LA is, is, is a pretty big hub. Uh, so my day typically starts at the rail yard. I, I, I hook up to a container in the rail yard and then I what take- time? Uh, well, we run 24 hours a day. Uh, my starting time is 6 a.m. And I typically work from 6 a.m. till sometime between 4 and 6 in the afternoon. And basically, I, you know, I take container from the rail. I deliver it to a customer. Uh, sometimes, a lot of times, they're distribution centers, uh, like Walmart distribution centers and Amazon distribution centers um, and other, comp other more independent companies that do distribution for smaller, you know, smaller companies like grocery chains and, and these type of places. Um, and then I will then uh, do pickups uh, from different shippers uh, who are typically vendors. Sometimes they're bigger vendors. Sometimes they're little mom and pop vendors. And then those will come to the rail. And then from the rail, they'll get shipped to typically some other type of distribution center that these mom and pops and independent 
shippers are shipping their product to. And just so we have a sense, what are the range of products and goods that you deliver? I mean, anything that you find on a shelf, you know, throughout this country, you know, and even in Canada and Mexico are the types of products that'll be on the trucks that, you know, the, 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 the trucks that I drive or the containers that I deliver anything from food products to paper products to medical supplies. Yeah. I mean, any type of product you could think of. Uh, I, I, I carry products that are, you know, hazardous materials, which can range from like really hazardous yeah. type chemicals to, you know, cleaning products, which can be classified or lighters, yeah. you know, which can be classified as hazardous. And compared to one year and one month ago, before the shutdowns and the precautions were taking place to now, what kinds of precautions are you required to take? And does it add any levels of burden to your day? Uh, I wouldn't say it's a level of burden. It's just a change in the paradigm. So I, we get screened every morning. When I come into work, as soon as I come in, uh, I go into like our main lounge and get screened with like a temperature check and a questionnaire. And that's every morning. Uh, it, you know, it takes, you know, a minute or two. So it's not a big deal, but it happens every day. Every warehouse that I go to, um, I get screened at the gate uh, by a security person or by some personnel uh, from that company or warehouse that's been assigned to screen drivers coming through the gates. Uh, we're required to wear uh, masks um, when we come into contact with any other human beings on that site. They're required to wear masks, and some of the places are required to wear masks and um, the face shield. Face shield. Yeah, face shields. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. Some, sometimes they require us to, uh, sanitize our hands before we come on the property. You know, different places have different protocols, uh, but they're all protocols that are put in place to ensure that there is distance between human beings and protections from that sort of contact and transmission. Well, I have a question. Yeah. What's the best part of you? What's the best part of the, the job and the worst part of the job? And how does that compare to the best and worst part of the jobs you had in education? Interesting. So the best part of my job is that I'm on my own. I don't have anybody, you know, to bother me, to bug me, to give me crap. <laughs> I'm just on my own. I, if I talk to my manager once or twice a week, it's a lot. I basically come in, start my truck up. And I have an onboard computer that gives me all the instructions, you know, in terms of what loads my manager is assigning to me, where I'm going, when I have to be there. Everything comes to me through my onboard computer. So it's basically me and the truck. And the only interaction I have with human beings during the day are warehouse personnel. Um, and generally the warehouse personnel, I, like me, they're, they're just there to get their job done, to get the product either on the truck or off the truck. And they're generally, you know, polite and easy to deal with. So that, that's the best part of my job is that I just, what I was really looking for in terms of like job responsibility was I was looking for a job where I could be responsible for myself and my work would dictate my work day 
and my work would dictate, you know, how much money I make and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, if, if, if I'm tired, I'll send a message to my manager and say, I'm leaving a little early today. If I'm feeling really good, I may work 12, 13 hours if I want to make some extra money. So just being on my own and making my own decisions and not being micromanaged and, you know, just being able to do my thing on my own, on my own terms. That's the best part of the job. The worst part of the job, I mean, is traffic, I guess, you know, and I get like the other day I got stuck driving 70 miles. It took me two and a half hours to drive 70 miles to this one customer. So that's kind of annoying. Um, but honestly, you know, at the end of the day, if that's the worst part of my job, like I'll, I'll take that all day, every day compared to my old job, I would say what I liked the most about education was working with, you know, kids with special needs and advocating, um, for their rights and for their needs and, you know, accomplishing a goal for a particular kid, getting, you know, some type of support or some type of curriculum or some type of something that was going to help that child succeed in a world that they had a lot of obstacles. And that was the best part of that job. And of course, the worst part of the job was, you know, dealing with politics and bureaucracy and people with personal agendas that, that didn't necessarily jive with what's right for kids. And, you know, that in a lot of cases superseded, you know, a lot of the good that I felt I was doing. And when it got to a point where I felt like the obstacles were more challenging than, you know, the positive outcomes, that's kind of when I was like, I can't do this anymore. Whereas, you know, being a truck driver, look, I, you know, I don't consider truck drivers, you know, superheroes. It's not like we're in the military you know, fighting for freedom. It's, we're not in a hospital saving lives. I mean, we're just delivering product. So you don't have that sort of heavy burden and responsibility that, you know, real, you know, health workers and public safety workers and military people have the, you know, much bigger burdens. Uh, but at the same time, you know, without, without truck drivers, you know, all of the things that everyone needs in this country. You, you go to your grocery store, you go to your Walmart, you go to um, have all of these needs that you have and everything's there on the shelf. And you forget that there are a lot of people involved in making sure that those products that you need, you know, to, to live your day comfortably are there. You don't think about it. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's some measure of feeling like, you know, part of the supply chain and, you know, it's, it has some importance. It has a lot of importance. Do you ever worry about being exposed to COVID and bringing it home to your family, to our family? Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a concern, uh, but that concern is balanced by the safety protocols. I think when, when this all first started, there was a much higher level of concern. But once it became very clear that these warehouses and these companies were very serious about the protocols they were putting in place, and, and we're really prioritizing safety, uh, I've, I've become less and less concerned over the course of time. Yeah, it's interesting because in the media, you know, there's this political fight about masking versus not masking, and it's a political issue, but within the trucking industry, it's not an issue. 
you know, the only issue is keeping everyone safe so we can keep working and keep that supply chain moving. Um, and, and, you know, it's in the, it's, it's in the self-interest of all of these companies to keep their employees safe, because if their employees get sick, they're not going to be able to do their job in the warehouse. If the truckers get sick, they're not going to be able to move enough product. So it's in everybody's interest to keep everyone safe and healthy. There's virtually zero resistance to the protocols. I've never seen a truck driver refuse to wear a mask on a site. I've never seen a warehouse worker that, that won't wear a mask at work. It, it, it's a non-issue. It's well, a, we certainly uh, we certainly appreciate it. Every time I see a truck at the local Ralph's hooking or unhooking, you know, I, uh, I realize that there's somebody, you know, who's dedicating their lives to, you know, to moving essential products and goods to us. It, it's not something um, it's not something that we should take for granted. So we we definitely appreciate it. You know, Dad, one of your last questions reminded me of um, Uncle Jerry. Uh, he. How old was he when he became a teacher? Um, he became a teacher in the mid eighties. He was born in nine. So he's, he's about 50 years old. Yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah. He became a teacher at the stage of life where Eddie became a truck driver. Right. Maybe but we I, should I, tell the people who Jerry is. Jerry is my brother-in-law, my sister's husband. May he yeah. rest in peace. I remember him saying his, his worst day as a teacher was better than his best day in, uh, the merchandising. Fur. Yeah, merchandising. So, okay. Well, we have a very important academic erudite theory to get to. So, okay, the asshole theory. <laughs> Do, would you like to uh, share? You, you're doing so. You, you have two master's degrees, and uh, rumor is you're getting you're do, you're currently doing your dissertation, uh, and you're going to get a PhD. <laughs> a PhD in asshole theory? Yeah. Well. <laughs> I have a lot of time to think while I'm driving my truck and sitting in the, in a dock at a warehouse. Yeah. So I have a lot of time for thinking and self-reflection. And so I've spent, I've, I've spent thousands of hours developing <laughs> my asshole theory. Okay. So you want to share, give us, give us the, uh, the overview and then we'll do a deep dive. Okay. So the overview is basically. <laughs> deep dive into assholes. You, you want to deep dive into my asshole. Okay. Interesting. Easy. Easy. Okay. Go ahead. All right. So the, the general overview is this. So you basically have a third of the population are really good and decent people. A third. Okay. About a third. Yeah. Give or take. I haven't done uh, a scientific study, so right. I don't have the exact numbers. Right. But we'll assume it's about a third. Uh, and a, about a third of the population are, I don't know if I could say this, but are complete fucking assholes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we have the expletive rating. Yeah, we got okay. that. Yeah. So the other third are somewhere in between. And because I'm an optimist, I think the middle third generally want to be good and decent people, uh, but they're easily influenced by one side or the other. And I think my theory on life and my theory on being a good and decent person comes down to the idea, don't be a fucking asshole. <laughs> and if you can judge every action and behavior that you take and really look at it carefully and say, was I being an asshole? <laughs> well, if you're an asshole, then you were doing the wrong thing. So, okay, so 
we got to figure out motivations here. I mean, we, we were talking a little bit about this uh, before, before we started recording uh, about what would be a motivation to be an asshole or not be an asshole? All right. So, I mean, obviously the asshole theory is, you know, kind of a tongue in cheek, you know, type thing to sort of water down a very serious topic into yeah. something that's easy to understand and kind of funny. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I really think of the idea of, of, of being a good person and what does it mean to be a, a good person? And, you know, on the serious side, you know, what it comes down to me is doing the right thing for the right reason. And if, if, if you're doing the right thing for the right reason at the end of the day, then, um, you know, you're taking actions um, and engaging in behaviors that demonstrate, you know, good and decent behavior, which ultimately leads to being a good and decent person. If you're doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, or you happen to be doing the right thing with the wrong intention, uh, that doesn't, doesn't lead to being a good and decent person. Uh, and I think for me, at least, you know, I know you, you've had like all these theologians on your show and, you know, dad is, uh, you know, moving towards, you know, Orthodox Judaism. And so he is guided by, you know, his values, which are dictated by Torah. Um, and to a large extent, you know, I'm, I'm influenced a lot by Torah as well. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it's more of, uh, you know, a philosophy on, you know, what is universal, what is universally right and good. Um, and, and, and I do believe that we, we don't need a framework. We don't need uh, a doctrine. Uh, we don't need instructions to tell us what is good and what's not good. You can, most individuals can determine what's good and not good based on what's universally true. Um, if something is done to you or something is said to you and it feels pleasant, you know that it's good. If it's unpleasant, then it's not good. And so if it's pleasant to you, then if you treat someone or, or talk to someone in the same way, then it will be pleasant to them. If something feels unpleasant to you, then it will be unpleasant to another. So, you know, it's, comes down to a universal truth, which is consistent in every religion and every doctrine. It's some form of treating others as, as you would have yourself be treated. Um, and there's different words that different religions use. You know, and I certainly use the concept of don't be an asshole. And, you know, you can translate a lot of those expressions into don't be an asshole, whether it's treat others as you would have them treat you, or, you know, it's don't be hateful to your neighbor or it's love your neighbor. Uh, those are all different ways of saying the same thing. Okay. But what, what would be the motivation? You know, oh. if, if it's so there, there are these, these crazy people that, oh, this feels good to me. You know, I, I mean, I'm going to use an extreme example, but raping a woman uh, it, it would, would feel good, um, you know, to, to that individual especially if that individual believes that he or she can get away yeah, with but it. That, in that case, that's, that's narcissistic and self-indulgence. It's not about what feels good to you. 
if, if, if you're doing something to someone else, how does it feel to them? Right. But what's the motivation to think about that other creek, that other person? So the motivation is peace, you know, is, is, is your own internal peace and harmony with, with the universe. And so, you know, it, it comes down to karma and I think karma is misinterpreted. Um, karma, a lot of people interpret karma as this transactional motivational piece as like reward and punishment, mm -hmm. um, cause and effect. And what karma really is, it's a, it's a state of being based on action, behavior, and intent. It's doing the right thing for the right reason, which naturally and organically supports inner, inner peace and harmony with the universe, right? Peace and harmony, if you, if, if you have peace and harmony within yourself and within your uh, place in the universe, then you naturally feel good. And when you have peace and harmony, you treat others in the right way for the right reason. And it's, it's like this, this constant feedback loop. On the other hand, um, why are people unkind to other people? Typically it's because they're unhappy. Uh, they don't have peace and harmony. Hurt people hurt people. Yeah. So when, when somebody is miserable for whatever reason, whether it's they had a bad upbringing or something terrible happened to them, or they just, they have a bad job, whatever the reason is for somebody being unhappy, they treat others with bad intent and that fear and anger leads to more misery and misery leads to more fear and anger and that becomes a feedback loop and so the motivation is really your own personal peace and harmony within within the context of the universe i have a question because i want to i want to draw a distinction or maybe realize that we're talking about the same thing so there's a a concept that I'm, I know you're familiar with called tikkun olam, which is basically heal, heal the world, make the world a better place, right? As you're describing it, there's a subtle distinction between something that we're working towards, what I, what I might think of and I've articulated as redeeming creation, right? P participating in God's redemption plan. But what you're talking about seems to assume that the universe has a, a good um, homeostasis, if you will, and our intentions and actions can either help to maintain a good homeostasis or might fuck it up. Are you, are, so are you, is your theory more about maintaining what is essentially good in that homeostasis, a good state of being, or do you believe that we are participating in something where we're working towards something even better? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I believe that we're participating in, you know, some group activity. You know, working towards something better. I, I, what I would say is that you know, all life in the universe, you know, is is connected. Um, everything in 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 the in, in in the universe that that at least we can observe is connected in some way, um, and we're a part of that universe and you know, in terms of maintaining peace and harmony within the universe, you know, we have a part in that. And on the one hand, you know, it, it contributes to, the, you know, the larger, more global, more universal peace and harmony, but it also contributes to our own personal um, peace and harmony within that larger context. Right.
Right. Yeah. I, I, it's a subtle distinction, but I, I, I don't know if I necessarily, I do think that, especially with the element of time where there's, there's a line, you know, that goes in a, in a specific direction outside of time, I probably would lean more towards you, but inside of time where there's a, there's a, you know, we're going in a, in a certain direction. I think we're, we're going towards something. I'd like to think that we could participate in something better. Right. Well, I, th I think everybody can participate in something better in terms of making the world a better place. And, you know, that's an amazing goal and objective for every human, um, you know, but that's a personal choice. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's a personal choice. I do think that there's a difference between personal responsibility. Right. And personal choice. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and, and in terms of your own peace and harmony, you know, you make those, those choices in terms of how you want that to be and how you want that to look. But then there are certain universal truths, you know, like the idea of live and let live, um, you know, when, when, and think about it, like think about individuals, you know, and this goes to observable evidence that sort of supports my or has helped lead me to you know this this overarching philosophy look 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 at people that you've observed people that you know uh, people who are positive people that are happy people um, that are good and decent people have terrible things that happen to them mm -hmm. you know whether it's they get sick they get cancer they get into a car accident a child you know die like really good and decent people have really awful things happen to them but you can see how they take those experiences um, and they learn from them or they take something positive out of it or they become motivated to do some good with it. They become activists, you know, in, in whatever that category is. Um, people who are unhappy, miserable fucking assholes, <laughs> like they could have the world on their plate. And they're still going to be miserable fucking assholes and treat people like shit, no matter what good happens to them, no matter how much money they give have. Give us a specific example of an individual. I couldn't think of one and nobody comes to mind. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, rhymes with hump. <laughs> I think of him as Donnie Depp now, the, the disgraced ex-president, Donnie Depp. <laughs> I mean, think about it. And, and, you know, not to, you know, not to beat up on a guy that's been beat up on a lot by a lot of people he deserves it you know but this is a guy that was born into privilege this is a guy that lived his whole life with tons of money all kinds of privilege had everything handed to him diamond on a, spoons on, on a silver platter this he has every opportunity to do something good in the world and what does he do based on all observable evidence the guy is a miserable fucking asshole he treats people like shit his only joy in life seems to be humiliating people. Taking the diamond spoons and shoving up, shoving them up people, uh, other people's asses. Right. As opposed to, you know, a person like Nelson Mandela, who was in jail for 30 years, 30, 40 years, and comes out of jail and forgives yeah. the very people that put him in jail yeah. and showed leadership and decency. And this is the sort of thing. And, 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 you know, that's the observable evidence that I see day after day, um, you know, that's brought me to some of these conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I have a little different. I, I don't disagree with you, Ed, um, but I have a little a, a different take on this worldview that that we're, we're discussing. The first piece of my philosophy is the only reason not to act out of pure self-interest is because there's a divine Godhead behind all this. Right. Even atheists who are moral ethical people, they get that sense of morality because they've been exposed to a world dominated by belief in God of some form or other. The other piece on an individual level is being able to empathize, being able to suppress your own ego and not act out of ego needs, but consider the needs of other people and put yourself in somebody else's place. Right. So those two things, a sense of morality and a sense of getting out of your own ego space results in not being a fucking asshole. Right. And, and I agree with you up to the point where a Godhead is part of the requirement to get there. So, you know, as you know, I'm strongly influenced by Judaism and, you know, I am Jewish. I respect the traditions of Judaism and I consider myself a Jew, but I consider myself Jewish in the sense that it's, it's my nationality, it's my ethnicity, it's my race, okay? Um, in terms of the religious doctrine, I read Torah. And the reason I read Torah is not because I believe it was a doctrine that was given to us directly by God. I read it because I feel that there are a lot of important lessons to be learned from the stories in the Torah. Um, and because it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Uh, but I don't think you need the idea of God to get there. So for example, in Buddhist philosophy, they get to the same place without a belief in this God, you know, who has characteristics that are human-like, right? This whole idea that God created humans in the image of God, you know, in, in Buddhist philosophy, you know, they talk about the noble truths and the eightfold path. And that's how they get to this idea of morality. And it's essentially the same thing. Essentially, the four noble truths are that, number one, life is dissatisfying. And a lot of times the, the translation they say is life is suffering. That's not the suffering is not really how that word is translated. It's really translated to something close to closer to dissatisfying. The cause of dissatisfaction is greed and desire. And the way to resolve greed and desire is by ending attachment. And the way to ending attachment is the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path includes right views, right understanding, right intention, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And so all these things are things that a person can work towards without the need for a God or a doctrine to tell them how to get there. And it's essentially, 
it's essentially releasing yourself from all of these worldly material attachments that cause all of the greed and desires that cause you to act in ways that are not right and not good. The one thing that both philosophies share, the Judeo-Christian philosophy and the Buddhist philosophy, the way you described it, is that both paradigms posit the fact that what we experience in the here and now, there's something beyond the life we experience now. So it doesn't have to be uh, an anthropomorphic Godhead, but there's something bigger and larger running the show. And our life doesn't end at death and it didn't begin at birth. There's something about us that has an eternal existence. Yeah, so I, I think for me, that's more, that, that's where I sort of veer off into, you know, Eddie land, <laughs> as opposed to like Jewish land and Buddhist land. And so my, you know, my vision of, I believe in what I consider to be God, but it's not God in the anthropomorphic sense. It's, there is a fundamental force or energy that essentially drives the universe, um, a force or energy that we don't really know or understand at this point, but it is some force or energy that is so fundamental to the universe that essentially drives everything and connects everything. Now, you could call it God, you could call it black matter, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it, there is some fundamental force. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Now, the whole the whole discussion about the big bang and the big bounce and, and all that, 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 that's all theoretical, but ultimately there is something driving all of this. I don't know if it's you, you're driving it in an 18 wheeler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's self-conscious, but it's important. Yeah. So we're getting into um, a lot, a lot of theory here. Some of which is uh, picking up the great conversation you know, of philosophers and scientists. I'm probably putting a lot of people to sleep at this point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to, this is, this is not a topic we're going to explore at great length today, but it's been brought up. Some version of it has been brought up in other conversations that we've had here. And that is, I don't need some God or something beyond to inspire me to do the right thing. I just want to push back on that a little bit because it, to me that, that sounds very, uh, it, it sounds like a, an expression that is unique to our time and place in history, uh, a very sort of me-centered universe. I'm not saying that you're, you're expressing that, but the idea that I believe in God and that, you know, my belief in God is a part of a moral structure when, when that is expressed, that I don't need some God to tell me what's right and wrong, or I don't need some God to inspire me to do what's right and wrong. I don't know. It, to, to me, that's a, a basic, an adversarial articulation of what my belief is in terms of God and what my belief is in terms of um, morality. So I just want to leave that right there. But I guess maybe a better way to transition into the next part of our conversation is application you know, maybe we will have a longer conversation about what I just said, but I do, I do really want to explore some current events 
or some current topics where, you know, we put some meat on these bones of, of the asshole theory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of which I, I'm going to continue. I, I just made a decision. I, I was, Dad, you and I have talked about our local congressman, uh, California 25. Currently, it's Congressman Mike Garcia. And I, I've been, especially when we talked to Kim, Kim Yeagid, um, I've talked a little bit about him on, on a couple other episodes. Scott Wilk, who I like, he's our, our state senator. But I, I've been a lot more diplomatic in what I've said publicly about Mike. Uh, I, uh, I've decided that that's bullshit. I, I, he crossed a, a threshold that I think deserves not unfair critique, not Twitter-like critique, but real substantive critique. So I, I'd like to introduce this topic and let's see where it goes. So Mike, for a frame of reference, for those who are listening around the country and around the world, we, which by the way, I see the stats, we get listeners literally around the world. I think we've covered every single continent, Australia, Africa, Asia, Europe, North America, South America, literally around the world. And I take credit for that because people are really interested in what I have to say. <laughs> um, actually, no, you're right. We, we do not have penguins listening to our podcast on Antarctica. <laughs> anyway, so for a frame of reference of Mike's record, the only thing of substance right now is that on January 6th, he voted to object to the electoral, the counting of the electoral votes. He wrote a letter back. I, I asked him about this and he wrote a letter back uh, saying, actually saying, I think the vote was only for the one in, Pennsylvania, but he said he objected to both Pennsylvania and Arizona. I might have that backwards, but regardless, he objected to the votes. He then objected to impeachment. He then objected to removing the inglorious MTG from her committees, a person who thought it was perfectly appropriate to stalk and harass a teenager who just lost almost 20 of his friends and teachers. Uh, that 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 was perfectly acceptable and that, you know, Mike decided that it was OK, you know, and keep in mind, the vote wasn't to kick her out of Congress. The vote was simply about removing her from committees. So he thought it was perfectly appropriate to keep that person on the Education Committee. You know, so I, I think these three votes are substantial. Anything he has to say about opening schools, which, by the way, his facts are wrong. The very day that he tweeted about how evil anybody who's ever voted for a democrat is that's essentially what he said for for you know refusing to open schools right here in his hometown we're opening schools so he's got his facts wrong but he he hasn't lost his spirit for vilifying people based on false information so all of these things combined and listen you know anybody who's listened to more than one episode of this program knows that i'm not you know i'm not a democrat i'm not um you know some liberal whatever you know, I have some very conservative views, both theologically, politically, socially. So I'm not speaking from a contentious adversarial, you know, this side, the other side point of view. I'm just speaking from a point of view of like basic human assumptions. Facts are facts. What's good is good. You know, let's have a conversation about it from, you know, and, and, and you know, there might be a couple different ways to arrive at agreeable end, end points. You know, when you have somebody that can't take a single principled vote that requires an 
an ounce of courage that that represents. Now, here's here's specifically why it's important. If we were in in uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's and she gets way more attention than she really deserves because she's about one quarter of one percent of one half of one third of the federal government. So that's really how much time we should spend on her. But she represents a district that voted for her by she won by about 70 points. Uh, she she won significantly she was unopposed. She well, she, she was unopposed. No, no, no. She wasn't unopposed. She had another Republican that opposed she, her. She won the primary. Right. And then in the general, she ran unopposed. Right. Democrat dropped out of the race. Now, compared to this district, Mike, won, we had almost 350,000 people vote in California. Twenty five, three hundred fifty thousand. Mike won by three hundred and thirty three. Not thirty three hundred. Not not, you know. He, he won by 300. That's less than one tenth of one percent. You would think. Can I can I interject something? You, you, let me finish this. And then then, yeah, let's open okay. it up. You would think that Mike would understand the makeup of the district that he represents. But by daily, daily in his newsletters, in his tweets and all kinds of communication, vilifying anyone who might have voted for a Democrat once. Not not just saying, hey, they have we have some different ideas. Let's figure it out. But by actually continuing to vilify, by sounding more like Sean Hannity and Mark Levin, he's not representing the very the, the most one of the most purple districts in the country. He's vilifying a radical fringe. He's representing only a radical fringe. He's representing an insurrectionist fringe of the Republican Party and not his district. So let's talk about Mike Garcia. Is it my turn now? Yeah. OK, being a. Um half a year Californian and a half a year New Yorker and uh, a proud unapologetic liberal. Um, I'm not familiar with the uh, granular record of Mike Garcia, but the way you described it, you're describing the entire Republican Party, at least the entire congressional Republican Party, except, excuse me, except for 10 people in the House and 10 people in the Senate, give or take one or two. So, you know, I'm going to put that out there. And I agree with you. You are not a Democrat. You are not a liberal. You're conservative on lots of issues. But you've just critiqued the entire mainstream congressional Republican Party, not just Mark, Mike Garcia. Just want to put that out there. Yeah, uh, Mike, Mike Garcia is is a symptom, not a cause, right? As many of these politicians are. And quite frankly, you know, you're seeing the Republican Party crack, right? People who have principles. Wait, there's a crack in the asshole theory. <laughs> well, <laughs> the people who are not assholes in yeah. the Republican Party are either uh, standing up for a principled position and interestingly being canceled by their party. You know, and I find it funny that these guys talk about cancel, cancel culture. culture. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is cancel culture? I never heard it. It's it's a, it's a made up word, you know, that these talk show hosts came up with. And yet, as soon as somebody in their party stands up for a principal position, they try to cancel them. You know, you look at Liz Cheney and, and all these others. Ben Sass in Nebraska, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, these people who do have principles and who are driven by values, their own personal values, 
And look, I don't necessarily agree with their policy positions, but if they're good and decent people who have those policy positions as a result of their values and their principles, I respect those people, even though I may not agree with them. They're leaving the party. They are retiring. They're not they're leaving the Republican Party and becoming independents. And, you know, there, there are going to be consequences. Um, you can't control the politics and you can't control the government when your your base of support is a third of the country. And the rest of the people who were in your party are now leaving the party. So there are going to be consequences for the Republican Party and consequences for people like Mike Garcia and these others who have determined that it's in their own best self-interest to be loyal to a personality rather than a principle. You know, something I, I don't think I don't think they're being loyal to a personality. I think they're being loyal to 74 million votes. It's not 74 million votes, Dad. We have good friends that that voted that way, but you and can't characterize vote that them. way again, right? I, I get that. You can't characterize but, them the same way that you would characterize people, you know, who either stormed the Capitol themselves or uh, support storming the Capitol. Not all of those 74 million people. I'm not going to put them all in the same bucket. And of course not. But that's what a politician's looking at. That, that's what the local, the people who, who run the, the Republican, the local Republican committee in uh, L.A. County, that's what they're looking at. Right. But that, that doesn't make it right. Look, a part of politics is understanding your constituency, right? Part of politics is polling and counting votes. OK. And, and being a successful politic- politician requires that you take positions on certain issues that are going to help you get reelected. But when it comes to other issues that are bigger, more important, universal issues, at a certain point, you have to take a stand and you have to stand on a principle. You know, so in terms of taking a position on an insurrectionist uh, riot, you know, trying to take over the U.S. government, trying to block a fundamental function of the government is much different than taking a position on whether or not, you know, we should uh, raise the minimum wage, you know, yeah, or or continue building the Keystone Pipeline. Right. Okay, And they're just different types of issues. Right. I think I think what it's come down to is that there are some who are legitimately concerned about policy. You know, if you listen to Ben Sass for longer than a seven second soundbite or even a seven minute interview on one of Sunday shows, listen to him in an inter, you know in a 25 minute interview in a 55 minute interview and you'll see that there's some principle and, and and policy philosophy there you know Adam Kinzinger is a great example he he ended up voting i don't know what his record was in terms of how often he voted with the republican party but if you told me it was over 80% or even in the low 90% that wouldn't surprise me but at the end of the day it's based on a a, a policy um, a set of principles in terms of policy you know but there's overriding policies that like, how, how is it that we're debating about whether insurrection was good or bad? How is it that we're debating about whether the, the, the election was free and fair and decisive? We're still talking about this after, after the, the, you know, Trump's own justice department said that there was, there wasn't fraud enough to, to, to uh, impact 
the results after 61 cases, uh, many of which were were um, there were there were judgments issued and, and, and opinions issued by Trump appointed judges after multiple recounts, after multiple audits. Why? So, OK, let's appoint a commission. You're going to move the freaking uh, field goal again. This this isn't, you know, uh, the goalposts, the goalposts. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I think the issue with with Trump is different than the issue with the people who are supporting Trump, like his constituents in particular. So the issue with Trump is it's purely self-interest, right? He started laying the foundation, you know, for this conspiracy theory, you know, a year and a half ago when he was first asked Arguably five years ago. And the extreme extremist right-wing media has been laying the foundation and and using a, a strategy for decades. Uh, to coerce people into believing these sorts of crazy conspiracy theories. And so on the one hand, you have a Trump who is pushing a theory for his own self-interest. On the other hand, you have millions and millions of Americans who have been subject to persistent, pervasive coercion literally for decades. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a form of mind control. And the loyalty that they display to, to this person and this ideology, it looks like cult, you know, a cult. It looks like idol worship. And what it really comes down to is a mental illness. And it's similar to a, a hostage who is- Stockholm uh, syndrome? Pardon? Stockholm syndrome? Yeah, similar to Stockholm syndrome. You have a, a person like, um, who is that, the famous- Oh, the daughter of the uh, 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 Hearst, uh, Patty Hearst. Yeah, so Patty Hearst, who was taken hostage for 59 days, subject to basically brainwashing techniques. And then when she was given the opportunity to leave her hostage takers or stay, she chose to stay and and take up their fight. Um, and I, I know that there's some uh, discussion, debate as to whether she really was brainwashed or not. But there's documented cases of people who are brainwashed, you know, in this day and age when when you have Fox News and OAN and Newsmax and, you know, Joe Bongino and Sean Hannity and, you know, all these people who are pushing the exact same messages over and over. It's the same six talking points over and over and over again, 24 hours a day. You know, you tell a big lie and you repeat it over and over and eventually people believe it. and there's no way to, to, to reason um, with those people. It's, it's, again, it's, it's a symptom and you have to treat them like people who are victims of a mental illness, of an identity disorder. You know, it's interesting. Uh, recently, we all know Rush Limbaugh passed away. So a lot of reflection. Thoughts and prayers. Whatever. Um, <laughs> sorry. I, I, I've really tried to avoid speaking, you know, being unkind not, not that he not f- f- out of respect to him and his family or friends or whatever but just you know e- even though he he said some awful things about people who passed away awful things about people with aids awful things about people suffering from terrible diseases like he, he was just an awful creature so uh, not out of respect to him but more at, because to your point it's just basically not the right thing to do to like you know dance on a person's rec- you know recently 
uh, who's recently de deceased their grave or whatever. But um, uh, reflecting on his impact on our culture, I listened to his program. I think I first came across his program. It might have been the late 80s, uh, but it was certainly by the by the early 90s. And it was actually, yeah, it was the early 90s. It must have been like 93 or something like that, because I remember hearing him say some version of. I was right. Clinton is stupid by my book, <laughs> you know, and that was it. And he did three hour riff on I was right. Clinton is stupid by my book. And he's been he did that for 30 something years. And so it does take a little bit of talent to do a riff on the exact same thing theme. But he, he spawned an entire industry any given day. So the day that he died, I knew two things for certain that there was going to be somebody on Twitter that was going to say a completely assholeish thing about somebody who just passed away. I also knew that Sean Hannity was going to take the most assholeish thing anybody said on Twitter or anywhere else. And Sean Hannity was going to make a show, an entire show, if not an entire week, about how that person represents the entire, quote unquote, Democrat Party or, or the entire you know, ecosystem of, of the mainstream media and the elite. And, the, you know, so I knew. And sure enough, those two very things became the theme for the entire freaking week. Well, no, no. I mean, the the tragedy in Texas kind of short circuited the Rush Limbaugh. Oh no, uh, no, no! Party. They were still talking about it because, because, it, because to, for for Sean Hannity, I, I don't know if you like. I, it's maybe a morbid like I, I got to keep on touching the hot stove and burning myself. But like I, I tune in. Part part of it is because a lot of my friends really listen to Hannity religiously. Uh, they listen your friends. to Finn. You have the long friends. No, he no, no, that's not true. Not that's teasing. not true. I have really good friends. I mean, just earlier this week, you know, one of my best friends listened to Rush and he pointed out like, yeah, over the last year or so, I only listened to the first two hours, not all three, because he's dying and he gets tired by the third hour. So it's not as good in the third hour. But part of the reason I listen is because I want to know what they're hearing. I want to know what they're being not fed, I guess is an appropriate word. Yeah, they're being fed bullshit for... But I want I want to better understand. And they're being fed the same bullshit from Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson it's and Mark Levin and Joe Bongino and Rush Limbaugh. It's all very and all these assholes. The and and the interesting thing is, look, I, I think a guy like Tucker Carlson believes some of what he says. I think there's some of what he says that he knows is bullshit. Yeah. But I do think that he does believe some of what he says. Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I don't know about Mark Levin and Joe Bajina. I just think they're crazy fucking assholes. And I don't know if they believe or don't believe what they're saying, but a lot of these personalities have a personal agenda to make money. So what they're saying, the, the purpose of what they're saying is to get clicks. And they've determined that by being more extreme by being by the crazier things that they say, the more clicks that they're going to get, and essentially the more money they're going to make. So this this is a, a personal choice for a personal self interest, as opposed to a principled position on policy and issues. And and you look at a guy like even Tucker Carlson, who may be less controversial than all of these controversial personalities, and even Tucker Carlson 
was able to defend himself against a suit for oh, libel yeah. because they determined that you have to assume that what he's saying is not factual. <laughs> I didn't know that. That is the exact, I mean, that's the actual wording they used to defend him in the case. That's funny. That you can't assume that he's, you have to assume when you're listening to Tucker Carlson that he is not being factual. Just to make this some more general discussion, I have a theory I want to float. Okay. Here's my theory. If by next Christmas, life is back to normal, or people have a sense that life is almost back to normal, kids are in school, uh, the economy is starting to, you know, get back to normal. People going back to the movies. Yeah, stuff like eating out, having dinner out, stuff like that. I think Trumpism will die a natural death. That's um, uh, J- Jonah Goldberg has talked about the half life of Trumpism. You know, there's a half life Bi- to it. If, Bi- if, if Biden is not successful, we're going to be stuck with Trumpism for the next 10 years. That's one. Two, the Texas experience this week. Okay. Nobody likes government. Nobody thinks government is good in their lives until they need government. You know, when government really fucks up like they did in Texas, and I include, you know, the electric utility companies that oversee the grid, that's all part of government. Um, As long as everything is working, people think that government sucks. Once things break down and they need government, the first thing they're screaming is bring in FEMA. I want aid. What are you doing? This ha- Why didn't you? Why didn't you? Exactly. And, and the, the interesting thing about Texas is, you know, because it's the only state in the nation that has its own uh, grid and it's completely unregulated, uh, they were, a, you know, obviously they, they were able to benefit uh, from that unregulated um, industry for years with with opportunities to purchase energy, you know, at very low prices. But that being said, because of that completely unregulated market in Texas, they could do whatever the fuck they wanted to do, regardless of what the consequences might be. And uh, look, I'm I'm I don't love government. I want, I don't want government to be intrusive, you know, in every part of my life, but for, for me, at least that is a necessary role of government, you know, to at least provide some level of regulation to ensure that the public is safe from irresponsibly behavior of large corporations and companies whose only interest is profit. Believe it or not, we've already been going for over an hour. So I'm inclined to begin to land this this plane. So can you think of anything that we forgot to ask, Dad? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, how much interaction, Eddie, do you have with other truckers? I interact with other truckers when I'm on the property of a warehouse, uh, but not a lot of interaction. Uh, I, I mean, I interact with my coworkers at JB Hunt, you know, the guys who work the same shift that I do. I see them in the morning. I see them at some of the warehouses I go to. So like my interaction, you know, is, is, is 
significant enough where, you know, I talk to people during the day, but it's not significant to the point where I spend a lot of time interacting. Have you gained any insights into why white working class males tend to support Trump? No. Whatever interaction I have with other truck drivers, I do not talk politics. I do not talk religion. I have no interest in their <laughs> points of view. Um, yeah, we just talk about, you know, bullshit kind of stuff. Uh, but what I will say is, it's interesting. I have like this little YouTube channel where, where I post videos about like my path to and through trucking uh, more as a means to like help people who want to get into trucking or help new drivers and stuff like that. And uh, a driver asked me to address a topic because now I'm, now I'm at a point where I'm addressing different topics that some of like my subscribers want me to address on the YouTube channel. Which, by the way, how uh, to share how people can find the Zen I, Trek? I or? mean, people listening to this are probably not interested. No, but, they are. Zen I mean, if you're interested in, in it, just look up the Zen Trekker. And Trekker is spelled T R E K K E R. Zen Trekker, T R E K K E R. V. V. The Zen, Zen Trekker on YouTube. It's good. It's actually fun. Yeah. So anyway, so one issue that came up, somebody asked me to to discuss the topic of public perception of truck drivers. Okay. Which you clearly, yeah, you know, generalized and expressed a stereotype of truck drivers, yeah. you know, are generally white, male, Trump loving assholes. <laughs> My stereotype was even bigger than that. It was white exactly. male working class. And, and and so basically the way I addressed that topic, like on my YouTube channel was I'm the wrong person to talk about public perception of truck drivers because this is how much I care about the public's perception of truck drivers. Not at all. I couldn't care <laughs> less what the public perception is. I'm not in it for acknowledgement. I'm not in it for any sort of public gratitude. You know, I'm in this thing for my own personal reasons. And I don't care what people think. You find yourself listening to more country music these days? <laughs> <laughs> I like Southern rock. I've always liked Southern rock. Yeah. But what I will tell you is that my, on my job, like I actually work in, you know, my, my division at J.B. Hunt, the intermodal division at, which is based in Southgate at the LA rails. We have well over 600 drivers. Yeah. And as a white male, I guess I'm working class now because I'm a truck driver, right? Um, I'm a minority. Most of, uh, you know, the vast majority of, of guys that I work with, you know, are African-American, Hispanic, other foreign descent, uh, like Eastern Europeans who came from, I guess, like communist type countries. I, I am a small minority at my workplace and it is what it is. Yeah. Any questions for the hosts? When do we start drinking whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we want to, we definitely want to get to the last bit. I want to, I want to ask you about, and actually the first one is very close to my heart. Uh, it just coincidentally, we read the same book, but we didn't realize we were reading it. it uh, uh, Stevenson, is, it, is that his last name? Um, Brian Stevenson. Yeah. So Eddie uh, gives on, on a regular basis to EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, EJI.org. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so the Equal Justice Initiative is, um, it, it was highlighted in the movie Just Mercy. Yeah. Uh, and the book is actually better than the movie. 
um, and, and covers a lot of the cases. And Brian Stevenson, I read that book too. like 30 years ago, started advocating for inmates on death row and, and the injustice of, um, of, of death row in terms of how people get onto death row and why people get onto death row. And the scary number of innocent people uh, who are put to death through our justice system, you know, who are executed for crimes that it turns out they didn't commit simply because they were too poor to have a competent defense attorney or because they were bullied into pleading out. Um, and EJI for over 30 years has been advocating and defending people who don't have the means to defend themselves on death row. Um, and, and also, you know, bringing a uh, public spotlight to a lot of issues that, you know, go to these causes that have become public recently. Um, and it's interesting that he has been doing this for 30 years, you know, and now, you know, certain of these issues, you know, are coming to light in terms of um, the justice system, the inequality uh, of the justice system in terms of police brutality uh, and, and these sorts of issues that are, you know, to me, a really important issue. So I give a monthly donation. It's not much. I mean, I'm a truck driver, so I don't make a lot of money anymore. But, every, know, but I do I do give a monthly donation and, and every little bit counts. Every little bit counts. Um, and the, the other charity that I wanted to kind of give a shout out to is Feeding America. FeedingAmerica.org. So again, EJI.org is Equal Justice Initiative, EJI.org. Feeding America, just as it sounds, FeedingAmerica.org. Yeah, and that's an organization that is committed you know, to providing food uh, to people who need it. And especially now, you know, with people, you know, suffering, you know, during the pandemic, Feeding, Feeding America has become uh, a very important organization and very involved, you know, in terms of all these food lines that you see around the country. Um, the vast majority of them are supported by Feeding America. Excellent. FeedingAmerica.org. And Edward Eric Nathan, thank you for coming in. He literally came in. This is the first time. So I had to try out my second mic and everything. Got it figured out. Haven't figured out the second headphones, but we'll figure that out over time. Thank you for the work that you do. It really is appreciated in all seriousness, like no joking, uh, all joking aside. Um, it really is appreciated. I do appreciate, you know, whether it's the guys that are delivering for UPS, USPS, Amazon, or the fellows and women that I see driving the big rigs like you across the, the freeways of America. Listen, you know, we'd all have, <laughs> I was just, we'd all have really dirty butts and it would be a much smellier place <laughs> if you weren't delivering toilet paper. So it, in all seriousness, it really is appreciated. And I thank you for sharing some insights about, you know, your work on the road um, as well as your background and, and your insights about what's going on in the country. So thanks for coming in, man. My pleasure. We're going to crack open some Buffalo Trace right now. So I have a drink for me. Okay, fair enough. Thanks. See you later. Take you care. Later, Love you. Love you too. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.